your cake online. How's it going, Cake Nation, and happy Hype Friday. A warm welcome back to the Chemistry Cake online podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and today airs the second episode in our organic chemistry season. In our last episode, uh, I got to chat with Dr. Ali Boyington about making difficult carbon-carbon bonds using medical chemistry. And that was pretty rad, if I might say so myself. You want to know what else is rad? Getting to chat with today's sweet guest. He received his bachelor's degree in chemistry at uh, the Rochester Institute, got his PhD in organic chemistry at uh, the University of Vermont, and then moved on to be a postdoctoral scholar in medicinal chemistry at the University of Pittsburgh, and now works in process development chemistry. Folks, would you help me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Joel Walker? Joel, thank you so much for joining with me to chat today. I just wanted to check in with you and ask how you were doing. Oh, I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here. This is going to be fun. We are so stoked to have you. Um, I was actually uh, doing a little bit of uh, investigating, and I was really interested in the work that you did. Um, So you did OCHEM as a PhD student. Yes. And then did MedChem as a postdoc. And now, um, as I understand how you've described it, uh, to be essentially like medicinal pharmacological chemistry, but on a much larger scale, which is a very simplistic explanation on my end. But it seems like your experience in OCHEM and MedCHEM are very related to what you do now. Could you tell us a little bit more about the nuances of process development chemistry? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been doing process for a little while. Um, so I'm, I'm still kind of new at it. So if I say anything wrong and you have uh, re- long time process development chemists listening. Uh, if I'm wrong, they'll let us know. Um, <laughs> but the way I kind of look at process is, is almost a combination of um, methodology chem, which is what I was doing as a PhD in med chem. So in, in process development, you're developing a route, a synthetic route to get to an active ingredient. So med chemists are developing molecules that they hope are going to be biologically active um, and they're synthesizing them on milligram scales five to 20 milligrams or so whereas process you're trying to make that same molecule but eventually on hundreds to hundreds of grams to kilos of material and a lot of the times the routes that you use in medchem to get to the, the product are not viable at larger scales for a variety of reasons, be that material cost, setup cost, impurities, solvents being used, you know, lots of different factors. Yeah, that sounds, kilogram is not a term that I use on my day-to-day. Like, I don't think most existing. people. <laughs> yeah, like kilogram is just a lot of material. I, I mean, I, we were just chatting earlier about how like you were using um, like, 50 liter reactors yep 50 liter reactors and the biggest reactor that i ever used was a five liter reactor and then you had mentioned something about like oh yeah like 20 grams is a lot and i was like oh my goodness like uh, i would get maybe 500 milligrams out of this five liter reactor so um like even scaling up that reaction was still like challenging Oh man. So that's really cool. So then, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about what you did as a PhD student. What is uh, methodology chemistry? So in organic uh, methodology development, you are developing a certain reaction. Um, 
So in my case, uh, the group I worked in at UVM develops the what's called the 1-3 diazoclasin rearrangement. So it's in broad strokes, it's, it's a reaction that produces a guanidine product um, from a tertiary allylic amine and a carbodiamide, which is a carbon doubly bonded to two different nitrogens. And then they go through, it, it's a rearrangement type of chemistry. Um, we don't have to go through the whole, the whole mechanism of it, but basically when you're doing methodology, you're tweaking that reaction to optim it's which is why i said it's similar to process development you're tweaking that reaction to optimize yield and recovery of product um and then the you know the long-term goals are usually okay then we're going to use this methodology to develop a natural product or a, a active ingredient or something that's biologically active that kind of stuff that's really cool. I know you mentioned like we don't have to go through the mechanism, but like the organic chemist in me is screaming like, let's go through the mechanism. We're not going to go through the mechanism, but <laughs> but uh, I am always like very interested in, in the mechanism. I, I mean, I can give you a broad stroke of it. Do it. I'm excited. So the tertiary amine nucleophilically adds to the carbon of that carbodiamide. And generally, the carbonamide, in my case, uh, you develop in situ in the reaction. Uh, mm -hmm. I was doing them from ureas or isothiureas. So you get, in my case, a zwitterionic intermediate, which Ooh. goes through that 3-3 uh, three, three sigmatropic rearrangement. And then what you end up with is a guanidine. That's and it's hard to, to show all that without drawing it out. Um, yeah. But if you have intrepid listeners who want to start to think about what that looks like, they can start drawing it out from that. I, I definitely started imagining what that would look like in my brain, but uh, I think that's really interesting. That's so cool. Okay, so then, so then in your postdoc, you were doing medchem, med and what did that look like for you? So I can I can only talk a little. I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about mm. what we're doing, um, but in broad strokes, uh, we were targeting anti-cancer therapy. Um, so. Medchem, we were developing molecules um, as, a, as a group. So I was part of a group of synthesis chemists. There's probably varying between seven and 10 of us at any given time, postdocs and grad students, um, and submitting molecules every couple of weeks um, based on when I got there, there had been probably three or 400 uh, analogs made in mm -hmm. the years before I showed up. And then I made, I think, 22 analogs of a certain SAR replacement um, and then they got submitted to our our biological co-collaborators mm -hmm. um, and then got got biotesting done on those um, so so the, I mean on that scale I was making we were submitting 20 milligrams of products which is hugely different than what I'm doing now <laughs> yeah that sounds substantially uh well, substantially more substance. Um, yeah. Um, okay, yeah. So, uh, with regard to like what with with medchem, were you focusing on a particular molecule, or were you focusing on like a library of pharmacophores? Or yeah, we had. I mean, we had, like I said, a big wealth of of knowledge based on one pharmacophore. Um, mm -hmm. So we had we had one main structure. That's kind of the center of our molecule. And then 
by the time I was working there, a lot of the work was little uh, structure activity structure activity replacement analogs being made, you know, replacing a methyl group with a trifluoromethyl, that kind of thing, or replacing one amid bond with a different amid, mm -hmm. um, be it a methyl versus an ethyl or something like that. So it, we were doing pretty minor changes by the time I showed up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would you see big differences in activity despite the small changes in the molecule? Yeah, there were a few of them that were that were really different, kind of kind of shockingly different. Um, mm. So I mean, I had a an analog, I had a hetero um, arene in the molecule, and just a a difference between one um, substitution pattern. So on one nitrogen versus a different one, there was one had really good activity, and one had a complete shutdown of activity. It was kind of crazy. Oh, okay. Um, and I imagine then, like, you're working with libraries. There are a lot of molecules that you worked with. Did you have a favorite? Am I allowed to ask that? <laughs> uh, as, a, as a postdoc? Or just, like, in general, of all the molecules that you've worked with, do you have a favorite? Yeah, w one of the ones that I made finally as a PhD student, probably the, probably the first one I made. So there was a lot of toil um, getting... <laughs> getting to the first rearrangement molecule. Mm -hmm. So I spent like a year and a half to two years. Uh, we got out in the weeds on a side project um, because we'd seen a, a kind of a weird rearrangement going on in, in the reaction I tried. Mm -hmm. So we tried hunting that down to figure out, oh, maybe we can optimize this. This will be a cool low stakes paper. Uh, and it was not. <laughs> because I could never get all that to work. Um, and then eventually down the line, we got finally me a rearrangement to work, um, mm -hmm. which was really nice. So I liked that molecule a lot, mostly because it was like kind of a bastion of success. Um, <laughs> and then that ended up working out decently. Uh, and then there's a few other ones from my PhD that I think are cool rearrangement products um, mm -hmm. that, I, that project's been carried on since I left, but I finished in four years ago. So I don't know the status at the moment. Um, hmm. Okay. That's really cool. What then is your, like, what has been the steepest learning curve apart from the, the yield from being an organic chemist, med chemist, where your yields are 20 megs at most to being a process chemist? One of the hardest things that I've I've been trying to wrap my head around right now is um, the use of HPLC and Ooh. assays. Mm -hmm. So in process chem, it's often either a waste of time and it's it's basically a waste of time and resources a lot of the time to to really isolate your product, to bring it to full dryness and to do all of that in the middle of a process because you're gonna redissolve it anyways. And mm -hmm. what's really important is getting to the final API and having it be clean. So in process development, a lot of what's happening is you're getting solution-based yields of your product. So if you get an isolated standard of an intermediate and then you can run quantitative HPLC on it, so you you measure out how much you put in, you can figure out its response on the HPLC with a certain method. And then if you 
are really careful about taking known quantities out of your solution from your reaction, you can calculate how much material is in there, how much product is in there, how much impurity is in there, and then you work from that, mm -hmm. which is, I barely got to touch HPLCs as a PhD student or as an undergrad or as a postdoc. They just weren't used because it was, everything we were doing was fully isolate and characterize the products. And that's not as necessary in process. So I've, it's been a big learning curve to figure that out. But learning is, that is, that is happening. Learning is happening. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> uh, and, and the other thing is just like, there's a lot of other considerations doing process development that you don't really think of when you're doing medchem or methodology, because it's like, when you're doing those, the important thing is the product. And that's obviously the important thing when you're doing process, but like, it's really easy you say to do medchem, run a reaction on hundred milligrams. Oh, if it's exothermic, all you have to do is stick it in an ice bath and you're fine. Mm -hmm. But like, that's not really, you got to be a lot more careful than that. If you're going to run this thing in a 500 liter reactor and it's going to be really exothermic, like you, you don't have the same cooling capability because mm -hmm. volume is cubic and surface area is is squared right so it's a big yeah. difference yeah so you got to think about a lot of those things or think about the fact that like process chemistry you don't really want to use solvents like dcm because it's chlorinated and inexpensive to to get rid of and like if you can cut down on the amount of washes you do in an extraction like you do that because uh, medchem you can put stuff in a step funnel and wash it five times and get your product out but like are you going to do that on two kilo batch with liters and liters of solvent and then you just have liters and liters of waste like you don't want to do that either yeah yeah i uh i did not i knew that th these were cons considerations that had to be made but i did not realize the gravity of like wow like if you think about it on that kind of scale, like, do you really want to extract with like vats of DCM? No, the terrifying ideas, <laughs> or like if it's exothermic and like, how do you, how do you cool it? Uh, so those big reactors, they're jacketed. So there's an inner, inner reactor where all the stuff is. And then you have a, a coolant flung yeah. around the outer jacket, like a, you know, like a vacuum seal coffee mug, but it, instead of being a vacuum, you can fill it up and have stuff circulating. That's how you cool stuff down. That's really cool. Wow. I can only imagine the, um, the, the value of that glassware. <laughs> or, oh, yes. or, yeah. Oh man. That's insane. I oh, think a lot. Of, so a lot of the really big ones. So like a lot of the 20 liter and 50 liters, those are glass, but the really big ones are stainless steel that are glass lined. Ooh. So they're a little less, uh, fragile. Got it. Yeah, that that would make sense because I, I was just trying to imagine like a ginormous round bottom flask, and I was like, how does how would you clamp that? <laughs> yeah, they're all they're all bolted to the floor, and yeah, it's kind of cool. And like, if you go to a, a plant and and they have those giant reactors, like everything, you're still adding it from the top, like you would in a round bottom. But Ooh. there's usually there's a second deck of flooring so you walk up to it and it's like up to your knees but mm -hmm. the and the reactor is sunk down in the floor oh so you can actually add stuff to it 
I think uh, I think there might need to be like a third deck of flooring for <laughs> me, just because I'm a small human and <laughs> I, I I can't reach. Um, yeah, I definitely have to have like a step stool when I like use my schlinkline. It's kind of laughable, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't even I don't even currently have a strength line in my hood. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So that's so I, that's kind of one of the things I was talking about earlier like you can use them when you're doing process development research but like you're not running strength conditions in the plant so mm -hmm. when you're running a reaction trying to develop a process being extremely air and water free is really hard to do in the plant. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you can kind of avoid it if you can. I think that's that's really interesting that you you posit that because I remember when I was learning about Schlink techniques, the way that it was described to me was if you're doing things on a small scale, use the box. If you're doing things on a larger scale, use a Schlink line. And it didn't even yeah. occur to me like, well, what would happen if we needed to do this on like like a industrial scale? Like then what do you do? Like I can't even begin to imagine like is that even possible and if it is i would imagine like you'd have to go to great lengths to be able to do that type of chemistry yeah um yeah because yeah. like you so like you can imagine a lot of solvents in academia and all those things like you just you, some people still distill them or they have the solvent systems to to really dry them on the on the alumina mm -hmm. columns but like a lot of times in process chem it's drum grade or slightly better than drum grade and they're probably wet with water from moisture from the air. Mm -hmm. uh, so your reaction better be able to, to survive that. Yeah. People even run tests where they purposefully add water to their reactions to see if it'll kill it. Mm, yeah. Or like you can run process tests where, oh, I'm going to run this reaction and I'm going to purposely make it stall either by adding too little of a reagent uh, and then let it stall and then see if you can restart it because you know if you can't then you're in a disaster if you get into the kilo lab to test it and you're running two, a 200 gram reaction and it stalls and you don't know ooh, uh, can i restart this or can i not restart this and you don't want to experiment on a 200 gram batch right yeah that's uh that i think that would be very risky um yeah, yeah. Of course so, you want to mitigate that risk so yeah that's so insane so development chemists like basically for most of the things we do we got to figure out all those things before they're going to be a huge problem and but people people know all those things could be a problem so it's not like you got to think about it new every single time it's like okay well let's see if water is a problem let's see if this is going to be a problem let's see if exotherm is going to be a problem yeah and then the one of the really big ones is impurities yeah because like if you run a reaction on less than 10 grams, pretty easy to run a column in your hood on it. <laughs> Could you imagine a gigantic column? I mean, people, people do that, but it's usually like a last resort. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, there, you know, there's columns that are like many feet wide or across that, wow. that you can run in the, in the production, but people don't like to do that because it's, huge amount of waste and yeah. so most of the stuff you're looking at for purification and processes aqueous washes hopefully like that that's nice if that works and cleans up your your material uh crystallization is probably the biggest one um mm. can you can you get it to crash out 
like of whatever solution you have it in? Can you get it to crystallize nicely? Uh, and uh, well, we'll tell everyone I'm, I'm usually terrible at recrystallizing stuff. So like that, <laughs> that's a problem for me. Yeah. Um, but like I, I'm working on it because I have to. Yeah. And you know, practice makes better. I, I just, I remember that just kind of made me chuckle a little bit because like, I can just hear a bunch of inorganic chemists, organic chemists, just like, man, you need, you need both. Like I've been trying to crystallize an intermediate and I'm like, how do I get this to come out of water when it's very water soluble? Like yeah, add I a lot just, of anti-solvent. Yeah. And then it's just like, how much anti-solvent do I even like, do I need? <laughs> like I, I would just, I mean, I haven't delved too much into it, but that's definitely um, like a future endeavor that I hope yeah. to, uh, to, to embark on. But um, yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. I, haven't, I, this truly is like mind boggling for me to think on that scale. Uh, just in terms of production because like I thought I was like oh yeah I'm really cool I have like a five liter reactor and I'm using it <laughs> even though I only get like 500 milligrams out and then there are the I forget that like oh yeah like there are folks that are doing chemistry on like kilogram scales which is it's, yeah it's a different it's a different world I mean f five liter reactor and like I said in academia is is pretty big like I don't think I ever did that throughout grad school and definitely not as a postdoc yeah and, like, the, only, the only time people are working on that scale generally uh, in organic on academia is when they're trying to see they're either trying to test their methodology to prove that it's robust or they're they have a common intermediate for medchem or methodology that like we're going to need a lot of this anyway so like let's just make 50 grams of it and right. that'll last for a while right oh man yeah i uh just for the folks at home the listeners at home if you were wondering um my five liter reactor actually did shatter and so did my heart when that happened oh no it really it was a sad time but don't worry we have another one but um yeah we were able to get it replaced but i it was definitely a sad day when that happened do you guys yeah. have a glass blower on campus i I think one of our students was a glass blower, like does glass blowing, which is really cool. I, I think it would be a really neat skill to pick up is glass blowing. But they're, they're incredible. We had one, there was a, a glass blower uh, in the chem department at UVM when I was there. She was unbelievable. Like she pretty much told us like, uh, if you can draw on a piece of paper and tell me what it's supposed to do, like you just bring that to me and I'll make it for you. And it was true. Like she could, you just give it to her and she would do that incredible it was wow. awesome uh that that'd be another like bucket list thing to learn is like how to, to do class blowing that'd be really cool ah okay well i think that just about wraps up our chat today however there is one final and very important question that i have to ask you joel are you ready for this final uh, question i'm ready okay what is your favorite cake flavor and why all right uh for the actual sponge uh, i like vanilla cakes okay um and then in terms of overall favorite uh vanilla cake with a maple buttercream in between Ooh. the layers and some nice nice regular buttercream on the outside really regular vanilla that sounds phenomenal it's real do, good. You, do you 
uh, do you bake? It sounds like you yeah. bake because you know what, what uh, maple buttercream is, which is like, <laughs> aha, someone who knows his cakes. Uh, yeah, I bake a lot. I took a, I've taken several baking classes at King Arthur Flour, uh, and as a, as a natural born Vermonter, um, <laughs> I eat a lot of maple syrup and, and maple things. Of course. Um, I, cakes, I don't make a ton of cakes, mostly because if I do, then it's almost all on me to eat it all, and that's, <laughs> that's problematic. Um, <laughs> but, like, I've, I've made a tiramisu cake before really good uh i do i like chocolate cakes um they don't usually do it all the way for me but um there's a really good chocolate cake i like that's like chocolate cake peppermint buttercream in the middle mm -hmm. chocolate ganache on the outside nice i might have turned i think a lot of rumor has it that i think like a lot of folks in britain don't like chocolate and peppermint uh i don't agree with that assessment <laughs> personally <laughs> i love it mm -hmm. um but yeah, yeah, I've done, I, I bake a lot, mostly bread, but cakes too, when the opportunity arises. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to get into that debate right now. Um, but uh, folks, you can't, you can't see it. My face is like beaming right now, especially upon the mention of tiramisu. That is my favorite cake flavor of all time. <laughs> Love it. Um, yes, that's so cool. I, okay, so folks know that my favorite cake flavor, quote unquote, is tiramisu, even though like traditionally it's not a cake, it's a pastry. If you do, if you make it the way that it was intended with, you know, lady finger shortbread cookies, yep. biscuits. Uh, a very close second, if you don't count tiramisu, is um, a cake that I had for my 18th birthday, which was marble cake and um, buttercream frosting on the outside. And then it was buttercream frosting on the inside as well, but it was a different texture. Like it was, the, the, the baker told me, this is buttercream frosting and I tasted it, it was light and um, not too sweet, which is really, this is, that's how frosting should be, is, is like light and kind of fluffy. And then yep. the inside was a bit more dense and I don't know if it was a vanilla buttercream frosting or if it was a, she just said it's just a little bit of, it's a different texture which it was There's, it was much more dense yeah. and it it was really it complemented the entire cake well and um this might cause debate or controversy but <laughs> i thoroughly enjoy fondant good fondant is yeah good fondant is very good if you if if you make it yourself, I mean, people complain about like the stuff that you buy because it doesn't have any good mm -hmm. taste, but like make it yourself and it, mm -hmm. it, then it will taste good. I, I do know that folks don't particularly like fondant because it can be gummy if you yes. over need it, uh, which yep. is true. I mean, like, that's true about like bread or, or dough, like, or cookie yep. dough. Um, if you overneed it, then it will get very gummy because, um, and, and if folks were listening to uh, my piece of cake miniseries, um, what, what's happening is you're activating the gluten and what's mm -hmm. it's, um, the gliadin starts to really align. Yep. Is it the gliadin? Yes, it's gliadin. Gliadin and glutenins, which yeah. is what makes a gluten right. a nice web. And so um, it's like trying to find that sweet spot of like you want it to have that consistency where you can like pull it and stretch it and it's nice, but it's not to the point where it's gummy and then yeah. it is is 
just unpleasant to eat. Yep. Um, so I, my first encounter with fondant was my 18th birthday and I fell in love with it. And I was like, I want this on every cake <laughs> that I consume. <laughs> Obviously that's not, that's not realistic. Like that's not reasonable or realistic because you need a variety of cake. Yeah. You need a variety of cake. Frosting when frosting is good is phenomenal. Icing when icing is done well is also very good. And there is a difference. There's a difference. There's a difference. Do you know the difference, Joel? It depends on what kind of icing you're talking about. Uh, okay, okay. I I know that there is a difference. I have yet. I have to uh, refresh my memory on like what the difference is between icing and frosting. But I think it has to do with the absence or presence of something. Uh, that was a very vague. So I will I will look that up and let the <laughs> listeners at home know the difference. Anyway, um, yeah. Joel, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This was such a sweet time. This was um, fun, yeah. This was so fun. And I learned so much about process <laughs> chemistry and just like the nuances of of the considerations that you have to take when you do this type of chemistry. Like uh, I def- those are definitely things that I take for granted um, doing things on such a small scale. Yeah, and it, it's fine to do it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and to the listeners at home, thank you for joining in in our chat. Um, it is always a delight to have you. Uh, for those of you that would like to follow the many process chemistry adventures of Dr. Joel Walker, you can follow him on Twitter at chem underscore Walker. And if you'd like to hop aboard the hype train, you can follow me on Twitter at chemistry cake. And if you would like to uh, peep my daily cake slice shenanigans, you are more than welcome to follow me on Instagram at chemistry cake online. Just because the chemistry in labs is on pause does not mean that the shenanigans have to be. So um, all of those links will be in the description. And uh, folks, this is your friendly reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to edify our village. Um, Phone a friend today, folks. And uh, thanks for tuning in. This is Chemistry Cake signing off.